Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and Peachy Keen is my podcast. In each episode, I talk to women of all sorts about life and art in the South. For this episode, I had a guest co-host, Stephanie Rains. Stephanie is an artist advocate and works as an arts administrator for the city of Athens, Georgia, and is also an independent curator and an old friend of mine. We were both freshly vaccinated for COVID with our double Pfizer shots and traveled in a car together, breathing the same air without our mask to Nashville from Athens on an art-themed vaccination, as they call it. It was my first foray out with someone I don't live with in over a year, so it was pretty awesome. There were a lot of awkward negotiations with the world at large as folks were just starting to get vaccinated and things were cautiously opening up. We saw some live music at the Commodore Lounge in the lobby of the Holiday Inn near Vanderbilt, a surprisingly touching singer-songwriter night. I think it was touching because it was the first music I'd seen in a long time, but still, it was touching just to be in a semi-normal situation with strangers. We ate inside of a restaurant. We went vintage shopping. We saw friends, we saw art, and we got to talk to Chalet Camellis Baker. Chalet is an artist working in a variety of media, including video, sculpture, sound, installation, and print. She's also a curator and has a gallery space that she operates with her creative collaborator, Clint Sleeper, called Unrequited Leisure, that focuses on video and net-based artwork. We met up with Chalet, all of us fully vaccinated, but still masked on at Unrequited Leisure to talk about her life and work. Hope you guys enjoy our chat. We started off with Stephanie introducing herself. I love working with artists and uh, this is my, I'm newly working in government. I have in the past worked predominantly in academia or for nonprofits. So it's a whole new way to work in the arts and with artists in a government setting, but um, Athens is a really well-supported government programming um, for the arts. So it's been really exciting and very challenging in the last year, as everything has been. But uh, yeah. um, it's actually a wonderful arena for which to advocate for artists and talk about the importance of arts so broadly. And Stephanie's also a native Athenian. Mm. So I feel like that's a special qualification for her in this position is she is, you know, Athens is one of those places that you hardly ever meet anybody who actually grew up there. Um, and so she's that unicorn of a person who actually comes from Athens. I've been in Savannah, Georgia for the last 10 years. And so returning to Athens, my hometown, and working for the government and working in spaces that I occupied as a child and were part of who I am and my upbringing has been um, really fun and rewarding. And so we both came here to see the show at MoCan, which you and I, Chalet, are both in that show. Yes. So I thought it would be a fun kind of a triumvirate for us to all uh, talk. And is that a correct word? That's a word, right? That applies. <laughs> it is today. Is it like a power? Are we like a power trio? That's I a triumvirate. So. Ooh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, we are sitting here in. Unrequited is it unrequited? Unrequited leisure. Unrequited leisure, um, which is your gallery space. Yes, in, mine and my co-collaborator Clint Sleeper. We founded the gallery. Together. Nice. And so Clint is also your collaborator on the piece that you have at MoCan right now. Yes, he is. So this Sweet. is the gallery is another 
version of our collaboration. We've done a bunch of projects that have to do with video and sound and uh, technology and such. So. so we're sitting in front of a video right now. Whose video is this that we're watching? This is Josephine Lee. And um, the, the title of this video is uh, I Think I Canada, I Know I Canada, okay. <laughs> which is really great. Uh, tapping into that, obviously, the, you know, the book, The Little Engine That Could. Um, but what she's really uh, trying to do here is she's setting up this performance where she's dragging this enormously long flag um, with the banner uh, and scripted with text that's it's sort of hard to read, even if it were all the way unfurled, but she'll never be able to unfurl this text to be <laughs> read correctly. And she's talking about her experience um, with cultural assimilation and um, learning a language and not really feeling like um, attached to her place that's supposed to be her home because of this barrier of language and how um, it's just this futility of no matter how hard she tries to connect and be a part of something, there is a disconnect. So she's like in a snowy field here with a white and black banner that kind of matches the background and it is incredibly frustrating to watch it. It looks like she's laboring to try to get yes. the thing untangled. Um, yes. It's a very physical activity and she's shown from kind of far away. So we see her as kind of small in the landscape. Um, yes, and even the landscape being a, a snowy landscape, um, she does this on purpose to create sort of a ubiquitous ubiquitous <laughs> um, setting. So it could be anywhere. So this doesn't just happen in one place or one situation. It happens for people who immigrate here to the United States for, you know, in, in lots of different situations. And so she's also trying to use those visuals to communicate a, a, like a universal place setting. So this is cool. I hope the frustration doesn't invade our interview, but oh, yes, <laughs> so we just exactly. sit here look and away. watch her being look frustrated away. for the whole thing. Yeah, we'll have to look away. So how long have you had this gallery? I know you've moved spaces already, and I met you briefly. I don't know if you remember. Yes, yes. Um, in your old space, which was yeah, like a, came was to it a see Victorian Craig house? show, I believe. Craig yeah. or Judy, I can't remember. Came which to shows. see Craig Drennan's show okay. with uh, Mike Calway Fagan. And I That's feel like right. he was he was vigorously taking notes the whole time, and he so was, I talked to yes. you. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I went to see your talk that day, that same day at Red Arrow. And so when I went to oh, see right. your talk, okay. yeah, with uh, Jody Hayes <laughs> yes. and uh, other, other It was like a mother, uh, artist mother artist podcast. Artist mother podcast, yes. yes. And so you gave the talk there, and then you, Mike, came over to the gallery. And so you got to see the other space, which was magical. It's a beautiful building. Um, it was an apartment um, that was part of this larger building that was built in the late 1800s. And it had been like a million different things over time. The landlord bought it in the 90s, totally rehabbed it, lived there some of the time. So that's probably why my space <laughs> was so nice. It's the space he inhabited for a long time and raised his kids. Right. Um, but if you could just imagine this long rectangular room, hardwood floors, uh, like the, a whole wall of 10-foot um, windows. So beautiful light. Um, great energy. Um, I'm not sure if the story is true or not. I'm going to research this, but the landlord told me that it was one of the stops um, along the Green Book where jazz musicians would come into town, into Nashville to perform, and it was one of the spaces that they could come to stay. And I love that part of it. It just seems like, oh, there's like the energy of jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s living in this, in this space. Um, anyway, so we enjoyed a year there. It was our transition space because when I moved to Nashville, um, my husband got a job here 
And so he needed an apartment. So I was like, okay, I'm still working at FSU. We're going back and forth. He's working here. And so I was like, we're going to look for an apartment for you, but it would be really great if we can get a space that could accommodate like a new project. And so Clint and I were thinking about like, well, it'd be really great to, you know, move our practice into other parts, you know, of the region. So and who so, is Clint? Clint is not your uh, partner? Is he your Oh, no, he's, he's my artistic he's your partner. Artistic partner. Yes. So Clint, were you working with Clint in Florida? Yes, Clint and I work at, worked at uh, Florida State University. He still works there. Okay. And then I transitioned from working at FSU to coming here. Okay, and so you got your MFA at FSU. I did, right? yes. yes. And so you kind of just transitioned into teaching. What year did you get your MFA? In 2012. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you've continued to work with Clint. Uh, after leaving there, I'm sorry that sorry yeah. I interrupted you. And you no, were no, that that's Clint a great way, way to pull it together because it's kind of like um, I was sort of pulled out of Tallahassee, mm -hmm. but you know we were collaborating a lot there. But this was has been a great way for us to stay connected, and we do all of our collaboration, you know, Google Docs and telephone calls. And he comes here like maybe once a month or once every other month, and uh, we work on you know mounting new shows and doing doing stuff. So you, you already knew when you got a space that you wanted to do a collaborative kind of project with him. And mm -hmm. the two of you, was Unrequited Leisure in Florida too, or is it just in Nashville? It launched here in Nashville. And what yeah. was the idea with, I'm really interested in this title. Well, <laughs> the, the title is really, it's, Clint came up with the title. And uh, he, he was like, okay, if we do this, I've got this great name for a gallery. And it would be really awesome. Unrequited Leisure. You know, it's like... Even just like to say it all the way out sounds like you have to you know, like take a rest. Um, but it really, if you think about those words together, it talks about what we do, which is a lot of work. Right. We're always working. But you know, when you're an artist, everything is work. You right. don't just like you know clock in and clock out. And so we wanted to talk about that. We wanted to like fold into the mission of the gallery this idea that artists are always working this tireless labor, labor of love. Right. right? And um, sort of celebrate that. And the gallery, because it's more of a curatorial project for us and less of a, like a business venture, right. it doesn't have, all of these, um, doesn't have all these pressures on top of it, you know, to be, you know, so I feel like in, 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 in the other space, we could really model this like commercial gallery format where we'd have pristine walls and lots of printed materials and uh, artist talks and all these things but really at the core of it it's an artist run space and so we're really trying to like hold true to this like it being in service of the artist the arts um, uh, providing a space where the ideas can come forward no matter what or like or creating a conversation and you um, mostly show video. I mean, when I went there, I saw Craig Drennan's work, which was painting. Mm -hmm. But you mostly focus on video, is that correct? Well, or? this is the Nashville real estate situation. Okay. <laughs> so our lovely apartment, which we had, you know, we put a budget together to do this year project. Didn't know if it was going to go any further than that, we hoped. So a year project was put into that. The rent in Nashville is, like, very expensive. Mm -hmm. So I lived in the gallery, too. So in the back of the gallery was an apart was you know continued into the apartment space kitchen bathroom bedroom, and so that really helped my husband and I do our house search while we moved here. You, right. know, you don't want to buy a house as soon as you land in town, right? right. You want to like get to know where the neighborhood you want to connect with is. So we had an opportunity to do that, but when the year was up, 
we had a house to move to in East Nashville, and this was a really high uh, rent for just our, the artist run uh, right. part of it to continue doing. Luckily, this space came available um, right around that same time. It was really like, we don't know what the next move is going to be, and then this just like materialized. So this space, tiny. So that's when we made the decision, like, okay, well, we will, you know, it's in our wheelhouse. This is like what we do, our new media projects. Let's just focus on new media. We have a lot of connections with, you know, artists that are working in this medium. It's going to be fine. So it was, it was kind of like, all right, we don't have the, the same kind of space. We have to change our mission. Yeah, so I saw you, you got your MFA in interdisciplinary art. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was a performance you did. Um, yes. That was a focus of yours in film. Yeah, well, kind of. yeah, so when I went to grad school, I came in as a painter. Okay. Painter, you know, I draw, collage, all these types of things. And you did your BFA in painting? Yes, in at the University of Tampa. Yeah. And so when I went to grad school, everything just sort of like, you know, unzipped my head and everything kind of came out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I get it now. Even I can even now look back at the paintings and the drawings that I was doing. And everything is a narrative. Everything is sort of a concept map. You know, everything has this very performative quality to it, even though it's not presented that way. So um, it just started to make sense, you know. And I feel like even now, these like... These sound projects, new media projects, video projects, they all similar, similarly have this mapped out, you know, abstract narrative that goes along with them. So, and as a matter of fact, I gave you each a little fold out. Where's <laughs> Because I'm a nerd. And I made, uh, I made you a uh, one-page zine, which is something I love to do with my students on the first day Wait, did of I class. Wait, I don't see one. Is it over here? Well, it was with the Josephine Lee brochure, and so it was on the chair. Oh, oh I see. I'm not sure where the pictures. Yeah. I'm afraid to touch my oh, yeah, don't. Yeah, don't, don't move. <laughs> don't move. You can look at mine. Okay. Okay. So, um, so I made you this map. But I coordinated it with the bird sounds because I feel like that's a real Nashville thing for me is like as soon as I got to Nashville, I really started just hearing these birds. And of course, anything that I'm to totally immersed in becomes a project, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the thing. So when we moved to that other space that I was describing, not only was the inside magical, the back space was sort of like a communal backyard that uh, like all the tenants in the building would share. And there was a wall, just like a, oh my gosh, I don't know, like 20, maybe, maybe more like 30, I'm going to say 40 feet across, <laughs> um, bamboo. It's a wall of bamboo and, you know, fire pit and a little um, makeshift uh, outdoor projection screen. And we're like, this is perfect. This is the perfect place to be. Well, all of the birds, at, at, like in the morning and at dusk, would converge in and out of the bamboo. And so it was just like sparrows and starlings and it just this it just totally mesmerized me i would go outside you know during the day and i'm just i was just mesmerized by these birds there were just so many of them in the core of downtown you know and so i went on to um i'm trying to just figure out where i'm living now so i go onto this really cool website um it's called ebird and eBird is run through Cornell um, University Ornithology Labs, right? And so it's like the best, like the place to go to learn about stuff. Um, and so they have these site maps where you can go on. It's interactive, so you can go on and you can put all the birds that you've 
you've witnessed and you've cited in the area. And, you know, I went in there, and curiously, there were, like, no birds. You know, like, one or two, like, sighted one, one starling in 2016. You mean in Nashville? In, right where I was. Okay. Like, on the map, exactly where I was. Just no one had noted the birds? Exactly. <laughs> and that really, that really hit me. I was like, so something is happening. Like, an amazing something is happening, but it is not a fact because it's not being recorded by people. People are not noticing that it's happening. And I have, I think a lot, uh, I extrapolate <laughs> that a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's, uh, it's very urban. It's next to um, the uh, Nashville rescue mission, right? There's like, there are some tourists that are in the area because Third Man was right next door. So there was like an influx of people. But in general, as far as like foot traffic in the neighborhood, bird watchers, <laughs> no one was recording anything, right? And so anyway, so that any, any, this is how I do my work. I just sort of go to a place, sit in it, and, and things just start to come to me. And then I start to make all these connections. So this Cornell bird watching site, did you come to it like trying to figure out what birds you were hearing? Is that how you came to it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to hear their song and identify them. It's, I, I've, I've been experimenting with this very thing in the pandemic. Ah. And, um... It's difficult. It's a very huge challenge to connect the audio to the visual. Yes, yes, it is because you know when somebody uh, does that one recording that they put on there, like they're only getting a snippet, and so there's a lot of different variations, and it's kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. You don't have a bird sound in my animation. I don't know if you noticed it, being a bird person. <gasps> no. There's, only, there's all instruments, and there's one bird sound. Oh, it's a which mor bird? morning dove. It's my favorite. Ah, and, and did you put it in there because it was your favorite, or does it also have some sort of... Like it just feels very southern to me. Okay. Like, it feels like a bird that would be in that environment, and it would, like, a morning... Uh, you know, morning is, like, in morning, wearing mm. all black, the way the morning dove is spelled, but I always notice them in the morning time, mm -hmm. and so that part of the animation where they're waking up, there's, like, a, I wanted a bird and the waking up noises. Yeah, yeah. And that's just one of my favorites. It's amazing how much they are a fabric of our memory and of place. And so that's, I think, and why we're Where we live in Athens, you can hear a morning dove every day. Yeah. Really? Every day. I hear them every day. It's a wow. very common bird It's a Athens. very common bird. And see, this is what I've done on the map, exactly what you're saying about Athens. I, I've, I put a bird attached to each of these places that I've moved through. And this is mostly, you know, like about this, this sound project here in Nashville. But, you know, I started at the bottom in, uh, in Tampa, Ybor City specifically. That's where um, my family grew up. Um, it's like the Latin Quarter of Tampa, historic district. And um, the mockingbird is, it's a state bird, but there are a lot of mockingbirds in that area. And um, I'm actually working on a project right now. It's not resolved, so I won't tell you all about it. But this idea that the mockingbird, you know, mimics other sounds from other birds, to me, um, is in line with this idea of like Americanization and how my family being Latin tried to like sort of shed their Latinness to blend in and assimilate and do well and all these things and so I'm, I'm kind of using the you know the mockingbird sounds in this new project to, to kind of tap into that aesthetic um, and then we move through and then we go when I go up to Tallahassee owls are a big sound for me um, in connection with Tallahassee because there's a lot of the woods um, when I did my MFA there, I spent a lot of time in the woods, which is weird for me because I grew up in the inner city. And so it was that, again, that is magical. 
So um, I put the owls here on the map next to the 621 uh, situation because that's where uh, I had a studio and um, our grad and our grad program had a studio there too. In I had a show Red there. Square. That's right. 621 Gallery. Yes, so yes. So I have been there. Where were the studios there? Well, they have... When you did not. your show, they've already moved them out. Oh, they definitely. Okay. That's that changed a really big part of like how that changed the energy. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so owls are a big connection here in Tallahassee. I move up. Oh well, when I I kind of have a back and forth that I didn't. Uh, maybe it's not really apparent on my stuff, but. Um, I, I moved back to Tampa briefly after graduate school, and I was working again teaching, teaching middle school art, which is super fun. I, mm -hmm. love, I love that. Um, but then I got a job back at FSU as an assistant professor. The, the, the connection I'm making here is that when I taught there, I developed this course called Art and the Environment, and it's something that um, I feel like was research that I had started uh, in grad school, but this was a way for me to now, like, get it out get it out there get get it in front of students who can take in these artists who are doing these super cool projects that have to do with you know loss of habitat and um, climate change and things like that so I was uh, a little so you've got these are field recordings that you're talking about like I looked on your projects page of your website and you have the no music city as one project and field recordings as another but they're kind of overlap between those yeah so when we were again this is me still living in that space downtown um i had already mapped out in my brain like what this show could look like i have this piece another piece how i could like move the viewer through the space with like a video as an element and the sign as an element um and then um, these sound recordings and some plants. I love to work with plants as well. And so, because I was working, doing galleries things and also still teaching for FSU online, I had no time. So all this stuff was just in my sketchbook. Mm -hmm. So um, when I finally uh, got it, a chance to start developing some of the works, um, I got Okay, so the Tracking Prints Layered Sounds project was something I was going to do. And I pitched to them part of this idea. It's like, oh, going to do these field recordings. Wait, I'm who, on is, who is the Tracking Prints Oh, oh Okay, so the Tracking Prints Layered Sounds project is, um, is uh, a project called Small Bars. It's a collaborative project between Ryan McCullough and Nick Satinover. And they put together an album of artists doing sounds and prints. So printmaking and sound together in one project. Is that the print portfolio exchange? That That's the print that? portfolio exchange, okay. yeah. Yeah, so now I have like, I guess I'm pointing this out because I had a solid reason to start working on it. Like I pushed gotcha. everything else away and I was gonna do this, but I pitched it pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. right? And I'm still thinking about this idea of, you know, the birds downtown, how tourism is affecting the bird populations, <laughs> right? So I had this going. I was going to do a performance where I was going to make like a sort of like an a environmental slash nudie suit, you know, with all the bedazzled. Oh, I love things. nudie oh, suits. Oh yeah. yeah, it was going to be great. That was <laughs> gold boots, bedazzled, you know, suit with sparrows all over it, that uh -huh. kind of thing. Um, but you know, everything really changed. And so by the time from the time that I got. Um, accepted for that project and I had to turn in the work we had been in the pandemic for a while mm -hmm. and so I wasn't doing my field recordings I wasn't working on this suit I was sewing masks instead right and so um, 
the sounds also started to change. So the, the, the project went from like the impact of tourism to the fact that, and you know this because you're listening to birds, right, during this time, it was quiet. There wasn't, there wasn't any music to record. So the, the idea was I would hear in the background, you would hear the honky-tonks, and maybe I would hear one or two birds. That whole concept was gone, right? <laughs> it became a nature preserve overnight. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And so, but but it, but that's lovely. So, it did a field recording in northeast, southwest, and all the different spots that you know they're still connected to country music or the scene here. So, like um, the Musicians Hall of Fame was in the north. Um, I went to the Opry in the east. Back to Third Man in the south for the, for those sparrows, and then also the Bluebird Cafe. Um, but I would say that the East at the Grand Old Opry was the best example of this because empty parking lot, which is usually filled to the brim, they're usually uh, broadcasting radio, the, the Opryland radio, all the time. So you're always hearing music, seeing people. Um, now it's empty parking lot, desolate, except for this oasis of like a potholed parking lot. There's rainwater that's filled potholes, and all of these geese. <laughs> Right, are under one little parking lot tree, and they're all around it, and it is just like a geese oasis. <laughs> so I was able to get this amazing sound recording, and uh, they, they have these really, you know, honky, uh, like, like uh, throaty sounds, mm -hmm. and so and, and their feathers ruffling and stuff in the water. Not you know? quite the honky tonk you were going Exactly. Oh, well, that's a good connection. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I did, I, so I got those, and um, for the project, what I did is I, I started them out, similarly to everything I do where I chop things up and collage them. Um, you have an original, I mean, not original, but a stem of each of the, you know, a clear stem of each of the four places, and then as it goes, it layers on top of itself, and at the end, it sort of turns into a composition, like a, like I'm using the sounds musically. My, my husband, Mark Baker, who's my like musician uh, collaborator. Um, he doesn't like to, me, me, for me to call him my collaborator. He's a, he's just my my technician, my, mm -hmm. my assistants. So, like, yeah, we're collaborating. We're working together. <laughs> um, and so yeah, so we turned it into a composition. And it sounds kind of like a kind of like a Steve Rush kind of a thing where it's it's sort of like a like a it sounds like a parade, but like a dirge parade. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Um, so I like the way that it, it kind of changed and we still like were able to make something I feel like is a meaningful statement using the birds, but the way that they were really in our lives, which was like in the forefront, not in the background. Well, know? now it's a project that you can continue after life comes back a little bit yeah. after the pandemic and see if you could just keep on with this if you're interested in it. Yeah, and, and it has made changes in... in, uh, in populations that's changing you know just the having that pause for a while has made um, some positive impacts and you know just even if you weren't turning them into uh, artistic projects uh, just doing field recordings is super important just as a documentary it's like a you know it's a scientific I'm always interested in the kind of relationship between science and art and I personally am really I've, I'm drawn to scientists. I feel like they have a similar process to artists. They have this investigative research stage, you know, and then they do experiments and then they have a final product. It's like a very similar arc. Um, so I always feel like it's interesting. I actually have a friend 
um, Carol Johnston, Dr. Carol Johnston in Auburn, who studies, uh, has written papers on how sound affects fish. Hmm. So she's an ichthyologist. And she was studying how like the sex car noises and sounds over bridges affected the fish population, and she was doing recordings with that. Wow, so it's that's like amazing. it's like your art project, but she was doing it from a scientific perspective. Oh, I love that! I never would have thought that that would be. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a, a an artist or a scientist, but still kind of doing the same kind of work. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like maybe I was supposed to be a scientist, <laughs> but part of my brain was like, no. <laughs> so Clint is not working on these field recordings with you at all. No. And mm -hmm. he, how did you guys start collaborating? I don't, you know, I've talked to a lot of people for the podcast, but not very many collaborators. It's like a special thing. Oh, yeah. We did an artist talk recently <clears throat> all about like our collaborative process or collaborative practice, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting story because right around the time that he started working at FSU, we just became fast friends right away, but um, there was a call for um, Inlight Richmond, and I have done this festival before. It's like an all-outdoor, one-night thing, um, light-based works, and so it was coming up. The proposal, was the deadline was coming up, so I was sketching all this, like, ideas, um, and... Uh, and he was, he was also coming up with some ideas. So he, he popped by my office and he was like, oh, I have got this idea for something for InLight because, you know, we're trying to work something up. I'm like, okay. So he pitches this whole idea. And as he's talking, I just get up from my desk. I go to the shelf. I pick up a sketchbook from, like, I don't know, like four years ago. <laughs> Bring it out. And I opened it up. I was like, oh, do you mean this? <laughs> From four years before I even met you, yes. He's oh my like, gosh! That's okay. That's a sign. We have to. We have to make this happen. So, um, so we did. So we also brought Mark in to to help us with this with that particular one. But uh, we took um, sound and video, and we turned it into like an immersive uh, uh, experience where the sound went from uh, like six channels circular around the viewer and. Um, the beautiful part about this uh, piece goes in with, I think, what we both try to do is to, to get the viewer involved in a way that is, uh, like, like, when I say immersed, that's not just like with senses, but involved in a way that's like um, meaningful. <laughs> and so the co he wrote a code that interacted with the video that I made. And the more people that came into the space and blocked, blocked the view with their shadows, the faster everything swam around. So the audio swam around from channel to channel, creating this sort of like aural um, merry-go-round, right, carousel effect. And same thing with the video. The video was like long and narrow, and then the imagery just kind of moved from left to right and fast. So it kind of mimicked a zoetrope. And um, the idea that the more people that gathered, the more cacophonous it was, and the less people that you know moved away, the slower it was. I think the slower invited people in, and then the fast kind of pushed them back out after after a bit of celebration. And so this moving of people through the space, it's something that I you know I think about. We both have performance in our background, performance art. Uh, you know, weaves its way into both of our practices. So it was like an interesting way for us to come together and do that. We collaborate well. 
So you mentioned the HTML code and that, and I noticed I was reading about the project that you guys have at MoCan right now, and it, uh, you had said that it was, so it's a Hank Williams, uh, the loans, I'm so lonesome I could cry so song. Could cry, is what, yeah. That's the piece that's at MoCan, is that? Yes. Or is that, uh, there was another poem, I can't remember which one. Yeah, that was the, the Hank Williams piece. And it said it was reassembled through handwritten HTML code. And I was like, I have no idea what the <laughs> hell that means. Can you explain what that uh, is? I can try to explain. Okay. Even I don't know exactly what that means, but uh, what Clint said was. Um, <laughs> so Clint's the yeah. like, programmer? Yes, he okay. knows how to work with code, and he does a lot of artistic projects that use code in um, really crafty, interesting ways. And so, um, I was. This is again an example of how we collaborate. I'm on the phone, and I'm like, "Okay, you know this sign that we have? We have we had purchased an LED sign because we wanted to collaborate with artists from all over mm. for the gallery. Spoken word is like this is another way that we can get a different kind of alternative." work in the gallery so we brought in an artist named Amy Bagwell and she sent us her poem and then Clint used the sign and all of its like you know it comes with all these uh, different fonts and colors and graphics and so then he took the poem and he overlaid these choices and created a piece for her we did that that was awesome we had this sign, and I thought, you know, I was trying to come up with an idea that, you know, maybe we could use for, you know, programming into the sign. And um, I said, well, I just watched this really cool documentary. <laughs> you know, I'm living in Nashville now, so I had to watch that country music uh, Ken Burns uh, deal. So, so I was thinking about Hank Williams Sr., and he wrote this song. And um, the whippoorwill, he mentions the whippoorwill, mm-hmm. you know, had already been looking up how the whippoorwill had been declining in population over the past, like, from when he wrote it, this is, when I lo- this is what I looked up, from 1949 to present, what are the populations, the numbers, you know, for the whippoorwill, and they have been in steady decline. So I told him, I said, there's a project here, so I want to do something with this, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what. One thing I was thinking about was... I'll take the lyrics and I'll do this cut-up technique. It's something that he used to do. It's something that David Bowie used to do. It's something a lot of musicians did. You just take it and, and it, like the structure of it inspires the next iteration, right? And so I was like, I did it. I rewrote it. I cut it apart, but it still kind of sounds like, kind of like, it still sounds corny, like I'm just trying to redo a poem that somebody else wrote. And he's like, well, we could just run it through this HTML code program and it, it will just randomize it. And so it'll be so random, it, it could never equal that same sort of like sentimentality and, you know, just it'll be so random. And it's like, okay, let's do that. And so he wrote this code, it reassembled the words, and then we took that text file, and you can, you know, program any, you take any text file and use the sign software to load it up. Mm-hmm. And so we did, and we watched it, and... Damn it, it still sounded sappy, right? Like, you <laughs> saw it. It's a little awkward, but at some points, it's slow enough, I think, that it just feels very melancholy. And just, just those, those same words, even out of order, amazingly, can still, you know, emote that, those similar feelings. His lyrics loss. are pretty pared down to begin with. It's not a lot of flowery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the technology of that signage, like, is it, I mean, do you find it, 
it opens up all the things you can do or do you find it limiting in a good or bad way like the fact that you can code it and change all the signage but is there more that you want from this device um no i li i like how simplistic it is i like that it's like other things you know because i feel like I, when you collage things you have that's sort of like taking a known reference and using whatever that mean the symbology around that and applying it to new concepts so i kind of like that and i i originally uh could see this as uh relating to tourism in town because it looks like the bus station things it looks like the signs on the buses that take people to all the tours around town and so it's like it kind of has a connection there to what I'm getting at, you know, without saying it. Because I, I don't, as much as I have a story that I want to tell, right, I, in the end product, I don't, I want it to be abstract. I want it to just, I, I have to start somewhere in, in my making, and that's where it is. But I'm, my, my work really isn't didactic in the way that I want you to uh, digest it and then go out and do something, you know? It's uh, interesting because I, <laughs> like you're relating it directly to, you know, signage out in the real world. But for me, I, w I went straight to Jenny Holzer, um, which is, <laughs> you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from an artist's uh, lineage point of view, mm -hmm. um, which kind of subverts that whole, like, process of going back to real life. I actually felt, when I looked at it, I went more with the commercial signage. The sensation that you have when you're looking for information that is a short bite of information that tells you, is this my bus? Is this the right place? Am I here on time? Or something. Mm -hmm. That those kinds of signs, when you engage them, when you find them in the real world, that's giving you a bite-sized amount of information. And you sort of wait for your relevant information to scroll across. Yeah. But when I saw your work yesterday in the gallery, I waited through, and there was a different experience, the pace of it and the way that the words arrived, and I sort of was like taking them all in and then sort of stringing them together after having gone through them once. And then that slowness that comes with, I, I really love poetry and I love the pace of the language a lot. It forces uh, me to sort of slow down and uh, take them in individually and then start to absorb them as a whole, as a mm -hmm. whole poem. And I felt that similar sensation. It reminded me of like uh, a combination of like reading poetry and letting that sink in and experiencing a commercial signage where you're just coming for that little bite of quick information and how it sort of worked. While that contrast with each other was just an interesting experience. And that is the challenge when you create an installation work, right? Which is what I normally do is create like an installation of multiple things for people to be inside of. Um, and, and challenging the viewer to slow down and to really, you know, to hold them there. That is like, like, how do I, how do I keep them? How do they just not walk past this? I got it. I got it. But seeing that piece singularly, I think is different because in my mind, right. you know, I'm seeing it along with um, um, these record players that would fill the room. So the sound map is created through these, you know, separate record players all playing. There's a video, there's a bedazzled either costume or curtain. So, so it's just things evoking this, this place. So what would the record players uh, be playing? And I know that you have recorded vinyl mm -hmm. at Third Man? Yes, um, yes. They have that, that really cool booth. You could do that. So I had this speaker, and I just ran the sound files that I was recording 
in, you know, through this, my phone and this, and I'm in the booth. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so instead of me singing, I got these birds <laughs> on the, yeah. And so it, it prints like a 45 mm-hmm. with that. And, um, and so I, that's another project that, again, the pandemic pushed aside, but my plan was to create nine of these okay. different places. And so that way I can like have a space where people could comfortably move their bodies through the space. And as they got closer to the record player, they could then hear the certain sounds creating this mental map, this mental sound map of a place. And I, I would still like to realize that idea, whether it's you know here or somewhere else, um, I have a residency coming up, maybe in the summer, depending on scheduling, but I have a residency um, at Soveworks, and I pitched to them that I would do something along those lines, but unique to Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would like to talk about some of the things that you have uh, coming up here, and I just mind your Instagram account to see <laughs> what's going on. The last post you made was like, is that a, a serpentine gold necklace? Yes. Which reminds me of like, I don't know, 70s Macho Man kind of. Uh, like you nailed stick, it. <laughs> thick, is that what it's supposed to remind well, you of? So that's it's what I think sim- about. It's in, 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 in time period, yes. Okay. That um, So I had already mentioned that I was working on a proposal that had to do with the mockingbirds and the idea of cultural assimilation. And so I, I, I did a piece about my family's, my family's gold. Mm. So I have pieces of gold from different family members. And that one belonged to my mom, and she wore it in the 70s, right? And so this was like my, the mom one. Okay. And um, the snake, it's also very feminine, too. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like when I look at it, and you know, that this it sort of makes like a, like a snaky circular pattern. To me, it just feels like very mother, mother earth. It's kind of weird, but... Um, so, That's the whole name of serpentine, right? Well, yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. Snake. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So all these connections are coming together in this piece. And I just want to talk about the idea that through cultural assimilation, you lose treasures. You lose something. You give something up to be that something else. And so it's like, what else have we lost? I, I don't really know. There's a lot of holes in, our, in the story, like timeline of our story. And um, the catalyst of that was um, my, my whole life, my grandfather would say, we are Spanish, and we are Spanish from Spain. That was like this catchphrase that I can always attach to, and we're Spanish, and we're Spanish from Spain. Okay, that's great. Sounds cool. That's great, Will. Thanks for sharing. Um, Your grandfather said that? Yeah, And my did he immigrate here directly from Spain? He did not, no, he did not come here directly from Spain. His mother did. His okay. mo- my great-grandmother did come directly from Spain, but it, it's more contrived and more convoluted than that, mm-hmm. and I never knew that. I didn't know this until 2008, family reunion, I'm on the planning committee, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to find out some stories now, okay? Talking to all the cousins, all the uncles. So come to find out, um, it's really more like Spanish from Spain, mm-hmm. came down to Cuba, married, took a wife, back to Spain, okay. back to Cuba, then to Florida, and Ybor City. Okay. Okay? So there was never any mention of, oh, and we're also part Cuban. So he was trying to cut the Cuban out of that story. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I'm sure, you know, I don't want to, you know, point fingers, but I'm sure it had a lot to do with he's trying to 
get a job. He's trying to, you know, uh, secure a loan for a house. Like mm -hmm. he's trying to do all these things and he probably identifies that he has to, you know, be the whitest version of himself right. in order to do that. And so I'm just now, now I'm going back and I'm just trying to pick that apart and sort of interrogate the reasons why this happens and, you know, and, and just through my personal lens, you know, I'm, I can't speak for anybody else, but through my personal lens, I feel that we've lost a lot of really important things and stories and I'd like to try to figure some of them out. And you're also working uh, this Moving in Spatial Limbo solo exhibition. It's going to be video work. Is that already up now? Yeah, yeah, it's up. It's been up for like a week and a half. And so every week they play a different video. So I gave them four videos and um, each week they'll play a new one on the monitor. It's very similar to our gallery. It's on the Austin P campus. Okay. And um, they're going to just change the show out every, every week. And the works all relate to this new thing that I'm talking about, about my, my family stories. Okay. And so um, there's some really fun ones that I do incorporate the birds into all of these, right? So I've got like a Cuban Oriole <laughs> that opens up the scene of this one that... Uh, kind of collages images. It's called Secrets Between Women in Nature. And so I'm collaging images of these like 30s Busby Berkeley scenes um, and uh, Cuban like travelogue footage from the same time and natural elements like real things like plants and um, water and you know like the, the difference being this like old grainy footage um, collaged onto this like super saturated uh, HD crisp you know, footage. So the real, the perceived, like something you think you know compared to something that is real, the actual. And um, I really like the ability to incorporate the stuff I've been learning with sound into the video work. I feel like it's coming more to the forefront, like using the sound as an element. Um, so we were talking with Amelia last night, speaking of the real and the perceived about NFTs and this whole, uh, you know, I've just made my first animation ever, and I'm trying to even understand what an NFT is and, like, put it into where its place could possibly be in the future. And I'm thinking, like, well, to me, it makes total sense in the world of video and animation to have some kind of original. I mean, I don't know. I, like you were talking about earlier, your, your work is a, I know mine is a labor of love. I don't really expect to make money out of it. Um, and so the NFT is just kind of a new idea that I'm floating around and thinking about. I know people younger than me seem to not disassociate art from money in the way that I do. Um, how do you feel about that? Have you thought any about uh, kind of using NFTs with your work? Or Not into it. Not into it? <laughs> in every way, I will always want to default to the either analog version of something or the old way of doing something. Um, I think I, I, I just feel that um, video and sound they kind of get a bad rap mm -hmm. because I have met a lot of artists that um, do sell video works, that do. They create them as editions just like a printmaker would make prints mm -hmm. and they, you know, sell them. They give you like, here's your hard drive with my work on it. You know, like there's, 
There is a moment, but we just don't hear about well, that. When you do that, much. so I don't know about that world. When you do that, is do they then own the video, or is it like you're selling a copy, like a like a photograph? You have you still keep the original, and they are getting like a print kind of. That's that that's conceptually you would think of it like that that that, that it's a print. Okay, so conceptually is one thing. Is it written down? Do you do a bill of sale that states the clear rights and usage for the purchase? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or like a Saul wit, right? Like, you're like, here's your certificate. But if your certificate burns up, you don't have that anymore. Like, they're not going to print you another certificate. So it's kind of, I guess, along those uh, lines of thinking. But, um, but it does happen, and, and, and artists do do that. And so, like, some of the artists that we show in the gallery, um, we have to pay their licensing fee. So they they take their work and they register it and they have somebody who does a distri- it's like a distribution company and so you pay the distribution company and they pay the artist you know their portion of the money that comes in and so we've done that many times where we you know so, so instead of a gallery representation you pay for a distribution representation like a bill yeah. rights oh like yeah they're viewing rights so to speak for yeah. or presentation rights i think yeah so people who make films are you know that's just like the natural way to do things and then so in the arts we're kind of like what how does that work but that that's how it's been for you know for film and so animation yeah i didn't understand what to do with my animation and i applied for this show in zurich and they were like what's your screening fee and i was like do mm-hmm. what what right. is a screening fee like exactly. i don't know because i've never done one of these before and I had to like kind of research it and it was very vague of course anytime you try to get information like what should I tell them my screening fee is I have no idea I couldn't really get an exact answer off the internet I had to kind of like hedge a kind of vague response to them okay well I can only you know I can share uh, information that we have had like some of the times that we've done it's been between 100 and 200 dollars I I would appreciate that this is actually some of the the work that I do is often to help demystify things that artists are like, oh, I can't figure out what's going on back here behind all of this, so I don't know if I'm... And some of these things are just uh, until you've done one or know someone well enough to ask. So I'm always looking for where is the gap in knowledge and then see if we can cover that so that yeah. folks can, you know, we keep the... Uh, artists should charge for their work and not just not charge or sell it because they don't know how to or what to they don't want to ask too much they want to ask too little so they are frozen in between exactly. these two decisions so that is something that as a gallerist we really do try to do is advocate for the artist and so we would have um i think it applied a little bit more when we had more physical things right but we always have a contract and i try to let the artist know that even though uh, we're just a like crazy artists run space, um, we do treat it like it's a nonprofit, and so if there were to be a sale, it would be 70, 30, 70 to the artist, which is the typical for art, you know, for a, a, a nonprofit, versus commercial gallery, which is 50, 50. And so, like, and, and I think even in those conversations, if someone hasn't, um, if someone has, they appreciate that you are trying to, you know, work with them. And if they haven't encountered that, it is an education. So it, there's a lot of pedagogy that goes into not only, like, the work that we bring in the space, but how we deal with the artists and, you know, making making printed materials, too. Can, it, it sort of just helps um, uh, let the audience members know how that we're treating each artist with respect and importance and that giving them as much information and clearly um, distributing it and... 
you know, I, yeah, it's all part of that because you know we're we're also coming from an education standpoint, so it's important to us. I really, I love that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's important. We've covered my whole note list over here, Stephanie. You're going to ask her about the flag, which I was also. Yeah, I so, really. Um, we pointed out yesterday when we were here, and I really like that flag. And then last night, I took some time to sort of look at the artist uh, Instagram and yours, and, and I would love to hear more about that. I I really I love this idea of this flagpole. This flagpole is um, like it was burst out of our new place in East Nashville. We bought a house in East Nashville and it was built in the 50s. And in front, we also, with the house now, inherited a flagpole, which is perfect. I mean, it, it really goes with the aesthetic of the house. It's sort of like halfway between like a post office and a, and a camp, <laughs> like a summer camp kind of a thing. Um, but when I saw the flagpole, I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I feel like we, we kind of lost our large audience with the, we used to have these first Fridays here that were so big. And now it's, you know, the numbers are obviously down because of everything changing. Like, how can we still get art out there and, like, let people see what we're doing? Ah, I got it. Why don't we just do a flagpole gallery as an extension of unrequited leisure? And so it's just like, you know, gallery A, gallery B. <laughs> and so um, it's been really great to uh, look through artists' work that are, like, using the flag as their medium. So I've been learning about a lot of new artists. So you brought this flagpole here. Yes, we, not... ins no, we installed this flagpole okay. just, like a, the, like, a month or so ago. Okay. Yes, which is an adventure. And um, <laughs> the uh, so, yeah, so the flag, I feel like I'm going to be curating a specific group of uh, people to show their flag works, uh, but I also think that it, it, it could, if somebody wants to show in the main space and they have an extension, like it could be like a bit, they're in both spaces, so just like any other space where you can take, you know, like at 61, there's like different spaces within the one space, so right. yeah. So I was thinking about this last night, Would I was like, I want a flagpole in Athens, and what if we had flagpoles in other places and we could, the flags could travel like a traveling exhibition, we could. Yes exhibit flag here and exhibit a flag in Athens and it would I just I love the the ease of which to display a work of art in yes. space and I love the people are understand already that flags are symbolic and that these symbols mean things and you can understand those things everyone understands that about a flag 50 stars all the stripes they get it that's right so I think this would be a wonderful connection for people who maybe are like I don't know about art, contemporary art, but the flag, they might be like, all right, well, I can kind of get how flags work, so tell me what I'm looking <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah, like accessibility is a big thing, right? And so that's part of it. And it, we are traveling these flags. We're going to travel it down to, I talked to Clint into putting a flagpole in his front yard. <laughs> I'm going to get one in yeah, Athens see? just you wait. Right. And so, yeah, there, he already has other professors at uh, the university asking to, like, maybe host student shows, student work on the flag. And so, yeah, <laughs> it creates, like, a, a moment to talk about things. And it's outside. So that was another part of it. I mean, everybody's getting vaccinated now. But I feel like when this came into my brain, I was still thinking, like, how can we just see stuff and be outside together? I love it. Yeah. And this is Jack Michael's work. I yeah. met her like once many years ago and she was in, uh, she had her own gallery oh. in Atlanta that was, I, you know, I honestly can't remember the name of it now. It was kind of short lived. And then she went and got her MFA, I think, in printmaking. Oh, I see. Well, she was uh, directed towards us from Craig. 
Because when we posted about okay. the flags, I think that was sort of the beauty of social media, right? Mm -hmm. So she sent us a bunch of stuff, and uh, we loved it. And um, I'd like, you know, there's, I don't want to throw too many layers on top of this, but it, the, on the flagpole at my house, I've decided to um, collect flags for that. So I'm, like, making my own private collection of works that I'm going to keep, and I'd really nice. like to make a focus on... Uh, female identifying artists, um, non-binary artists, and just like have this as my personal collection. Because I think as a curator, the part that you don't get to do a lot in the shows that revolve throughout the year setting is you really get to care for this collection and then you can research it, talk more about it in depth. And so I'd like to make my own collection of works that I can, you know, talk about and put to, you know, put, put to, maybe a lecture behind. Uh, how do you plan to store the flags? Just out of curiosity. Mm. If you a, if you Storage a is, is a thing. We have a very large art collection at home. <laughs> My husband started collecting art. Like He lived in Atlanta for 30 years and he's been collecting art for a long time. And so we already sort of call the guest room our art vault. <laughs> and there's art on every wall in the house. So um, I'm kind of seeing the flags as being sort of a light part of that collection, right? Because they can be folded That's and stacked nice, yeah. and so I can see them all categorized, and yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. I like that. Well, it's been an hour, folks. It's been a nice chat. I feel like we could do this for two hours easily, easily. but I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut us off here. Um, Stephanie, thanks for joining us, and Shelley, thanks for having us into your space here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for this space and this time. Thanks again to Chalet Camellis Baker and to my guest co-host for this episode, Stephanie Raines. Chalet will be an artist in residence at Stoveworks in Chattanooga this summer and is curating a solo show of works by Liz Clayton Schofield at Unrequited Leisure this August, where she's also just raised a new flag exhibition by Christina Molina and Jonathan Traviesa. You can still catch the Radical Thoughts exhibition up at MOCAN, the Museum of Contemporary Art Nashville, curated by Brooke Coffert, that has Chalet and Clint's collaboration, the lonesome cut-up piece that we discussed, and my animation with the Morning Dove sounds. It's up until May 29th. You can get your tickets through the MOCAN website. There's a link on the Peachy Keen page of my website at Vivian Liddell, that's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L dot com. On this episode's Peachy Keen page, you can also find a whole section of links to artists, galleries, and other websites related to our chat, along with photos, including a photo of the super cute little zine map that Chalet gave us. What a gift. I love it. Thanks for listening to episode 34 of Peachy Keen Podcast. There are so many great women in the arts around the Southeast, and as you can tell by listening, I love getting to know them and their work and being able to share it with all of you. If you'd like to help support the podcast, you can leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. You can put in any name you'd like, so it's pretty anonymous and only takes a minute, but really helps people find the podcast since podcasts are ranked by reviews. Peachy Keen also has a Patreon page, you can search for it at patreon.com if you would prefer to make a financial contribution. For a special treat, I'm going to end our episode today not with the usual harmonica closer, 
but with a Nashville field recording from Chalet Camellus Baker. I hope you all are enjoying the spring, paying close attention to those bird noises out there, and that your days are peachy keen. <laughs>